What does that actually mean? It only counts with horseshoes and hand grenades. Well, in the game of horseshoes, if you get your horseshoe close to the post, you get a point, right? But in pretty much every other game, you have to either get the ball over the net or out of the field or across the line to get a point, but not in horseshoes. Um, It's almost as good enough. Um, And how about hand grenades? Well, if you're in a war, if you're doing battle, uh, you don't necessarily have to hit your opponent with the grenade. You can just throw it near them and you can destroy your enemies with a hand grenade. So with hand grenades, almost is enough. But when it comes to the kingship of Christ, he is not just sort of a king. He is not just almost a king. He is totally king. He is king of all, king of kings, and lord of lords. And if this is true, which it is, then that means that everything we are and everything we have, we owe to him. Because of what Christ has done, friends, because Christ was born as a babe in a manger, because he came and he lived the perfect life that we could never live, and at the end of that life, as the good king laid down his life on behalf of his people so that we might live, we owe to him all that we are. We owe him everything. And in our text today, we are going to see that in two ways. So two points tonight, two things for you to focus on. The first is that Jesus is king of all, and therefore everything we are and everything we do should be given to him. Jesus is king of all, and therefore everything we are and everything we do should be given to him. Second, Jesus is king of all, and therefore, getting more specific, our joy our worship, and our devotion should be given to Him. Okay, so two points. We see that first point, Jesus is King of all, and therefore everything we are and everything we do should be given to Him in verses 1 through 8. Let's look back at that again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So who is this King Herod, and why does he respond in this way to the birth of Christ? Well, first of all, Herod was the king in Palestine in the region where Jesus was born. And Herod was the king over the Jews from the years 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. But he is not the rightful king in any way whatsoever. He is not the rightful king in a spiritual sense or a physical sense. And we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. Herod is an Idumean. That is, 
he descends from the family of Esau. So he does not even come from the true line of godly kings. Uh, His family had converted to Judaism, and through a series of uh, events, he doesn't descend from the line of Israelite kings anyways, what I meant to say, Um, he he gets into this kingship through a series of events I'm not going to get into uh, right now, but um, he comes into this uh, throne, and he is made king in Palestine. You have to remember something about the historical situation of the Jews at this time. They're living under the Roman Empire. The Romans had taken over the entire world, and Herod had ruled favorably on, the half, on behalf of the uh, Romans in Galilee, and therefore he was later appointed king in Judea. But again, he is not the rightful king in a physical sense or a spiritual sense. For a long time now, God's people have been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah King. In the Old Testament, God had promised that somebody, uh, that there was a child that would come from the family line of David who would one day sit on his throne and reign forever and ever. And so all the people are looking forward to this. The Jews look forward to the Messiah King to come and deliver them from their oppression and make them the head of all the nations. Intentions were already high between um, Herod and the Jewish people because of their history, and the Jews had been living underneath the uh, Roman Empire for some time. So everybody is looking for this Messiah King. Everybody is awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. When Herod gets word that he is born, he is anxious to go and find him. The text tells us that he was troubled. And that word troubled means to shake to stir up and to disturb. So why is Herod so alarmed at the coming of this child to be born as the king? Well, because he threatens his kingship. He threatens everything that he has. Herod had been working very hard for a long time to get the things that he had and to acquire the things that he had obtained. And this child puts all of that in jeopardy for Herod. Herod had fashioned himself as the true king of Jerusalem. He had took to building a temple that was as great and grand as the greatest temple ever built under the height of Israel's glory when Solomon was reigning as king. And by the way, Solomon is actually the son of David, which is interesting. So here you have this man who is a perpetrator. Uh, He fancies himself to be a true king king in Israel, a son of David, as it were. And so when he hears that this Christ child is born, that the true king is born, he must do something about it. He must do something about it. He must do away with him. He must destroy him. He cannot be allowed to live. So when he hears that he has been born from these wise men, he gets all the chief priests and the scribes together to try to figure out exactly where the child would be born. And he's going to use the wise men to lead him right to the child. And he says, whenever you find him, send me word so that I too may come and worship him, which is an absolutely wicked thing. Because does Herod actually want to go and worship the Christ child? No, he wants to destroy him. He wants to slaughter him, which is evident from the thing that he does next after he finds out he's been duped by the wise men, he sends henchmen to to Bethlehem to kill every child under the age of two years old. And again, 
This is the work of the evil one. Uh, as a matter of fact, we read in the book of Revelation that the very devil himself is, is behind Herod inspiring him to murder the Christ child. Why? Again, because he threatens his kingdom. Christ has come to invade the kingdoms of this world, and he does that by taking the kingdoms of darkness and turning them into kingdoms of light. And wicked men and the devil do not like that because he threatens their kingdom. He poses a direct threat to everything that they have built for themselves. And friends, we have to ask ourselves if the kingdom of Christ poses a threat to our kingdoms. Does the kingdom of Christ pose a threat to your kingdom? When the kingdom of Christ comes, does it run into conflict with the things that you've gathered for for yourself and with the things that you have built for yourself? Are you willing to give those things up for the sake of Christ and his kingdom when you are confronted with it? Well, first of all, look at your life. Who are you? Who are you? Do you find your identity in some facade that you have created for yourself? Is the person that you fancy yourself to be just that, a fantasy, a facade, a cloak, a disguise, a facade? Is it that? Friends, when you are presented with the true king of kings, everything becomes real because he puts everything into perspective. If he is truly king, and he is, then he tells us who we are and what we are supposed to be doing. And therefore, we are to find our identities not in ourselves, but in him. We find our identity in him. And friends, let me tell you something. When you find your identity in Jesus Christ, the true king of kings, that will set you free. Every one of us in our sin have tried to create an image of ourselves that is unrealistic. Let me say that again. Every one of us in our sin have tried to create an image of ourselves that's unrealistic. We create this image in our own minds and we take it and we prop it up for uh, the world to see. We project it on ourselves and out there into the world for everybody else to look at. And friends, let me tell you that your identity is not found in any of these things. It's not found in the family that you were born into. It is not found in the name that you are trying to live up to. It's it's not found in the club that you're a part of. Your identity is not found in your failures. You hear that? It's not found in your failures. Your failures do not make you who you are. Your identity is not found in what you have and what you do not have. Your identity is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And until you bow the knee to him as Lord and accept that, you are going to continue to try to be the king of your own identity. Jesus is the king. And when we embrace him as Lord, all of these other things find their proper place. When you embrace Jesus as Lord and you find your identity in Him, you no longer care about what other people think. You no longer care about what you have and what you don't have because you belong to Him. You see that? And you have everything that you could ever need in Him. 
What about your time and the way that you invest your energy? When you are presented with Christ and his kingdom, he is going to demand some of that of you, of your time and energy. So are you willing to give some of that up? Are you going to, to spend the time that it takes to get to know Christ, to get to know his people, to learn him, to learn his word, to worship him, to devote yourselves to him? Will you seek to spend your time and energy building his kingdom, or will you continue to try to build your own kingdom? <clears throat> if Christ is king, and he is, and if he has come, and he has, then everything that we have and everything that we are belongs to him anyway, and therefore we are to submit it to him. So, Jesus is king of all, and therefore everything we are and everything we do should be given to him. We see that second point, Jesus is king of all, and therefore our joy, our worship, and our devotion should be given to him in verses 9 through 12. Let's read that again. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Again, we will ask the same question. Who are these wise men and why do they respond in the way that they do when they find out that a king has been born? There are many questions that we cannot answer definitively about these wise men. We do not know how many they, uh, there were. We do not know exactly where they came from uh, in the east. We do not know exactly what kind of star this was and exactly how it guided them. Uh, We don't know these things absolutely, but what we do know is that they were wise men, they were from the east, and they were guided by a star. So first of all, they are wise men from the east. Uh, There are mainly two schools of thought about what this means. There are some who think that these men came from Babylonia or from the Mede and Persian Empire, which, by the way, are both empires that Israel was held captive in, prior to this time. You'll remember that Israel was in bondage to Babylon and to Medo-Persian. I think there's a connection there. Now, the one thing that we know for certain is that Daniel was a captive in both of these empires. Daniel, the prophet, was a captive in Medo-Persia and in Babylon, and while he was there, he was faithful to witness to the kings. As a matter of fact, uh, Daniel was made essentially one of the top men in both of these kingdoms, and he was a faithful counselor to both of the kings while he was there. So it is not out of the realm of possibility to think that Daniel and his friends made some disciples while they were in Babylon and in Medo Persia, is it? <clears throat> Pretty much everybody d- uh, agrees that there, are convert- there were converts to Judaism in both of these nations. So whether they were Babylonians or Medes, it really makes no difference. They were men from the east who had been discipled by faithful Israelites when they were in their territory. So these men are Christians in the Old Testament sense of the word. These are men who had been 
discipled by those who were discipled, and they were now looking forward to the coming of Christ, these wise men from the east. And that is why they come looking for him. Now, the Greek word for wise men is magi. It's actually magi, which basically were men from the ancient uh, Near East who at some official capacity studied ancient texts. They studied ancient texts like the scriptures we have. And because of the fascination that they have with stars, it's most likely that they studied the sky. These men were like astrologers studying the stars and the planets. Uh, and it is not out of the realm of possibility to say that God spoke to him through, uh, spoke to these men through his creation. The Bible says that God writes his revelation in the heavens. Moreover, uh, there is a prophecy given in the Old Testament by Balaam that said, a star, let me see, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So there's that prophecy in the scriptures, in the ancient text. Moreover, Daniel, the man who was in both of these empires, while he was there, he gave a prophecy that delineated, delineated the exact time frame in which the Messiah would appear. So if we couple all these things together, the fact that these men were looking at the sky and that they understood the sky and that there's a good possibility that they they had these prophecies on hand, when they saw this phenomenon in the sky, they would have taken what they had and connected it with the prophecies and followed that star to the very place where the, the Messiah was supposed to be born in Israel according to the prophecies in that time frame. Right. So that is where they come from. That is the Magi from the east. The text tells us that the star moved through the sky. The star moved through the sky and guided them to the place where the Messiah was. So did everybody see this star? Was it visible to everybody uh, in that region at the time? We don't know. Uh, Was it a low-hanging star? Um, we, We don't know answers to these questions. But what we do know is that the star appeared again and guided them to the very place where they could find Christ the King. It seems as if it appeared again, and they go and they see it, and, and they go right to the house where Jesus uh, was with his mother. Now, three things I want you to notice about their response here in the text. One, it says, the star appeared again and took them right to the place where the king was, and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Did you get that? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So first thing, they rejoiced. They were joyful at the coming of the Messiah. Second, when they came into the house and they saw the Christ child, they fell down before him and worshipped. Right? So they rejoiced and they worshipped. And finally, they gave gifts to him. Uh, Out of their treasure chest, they presented him with gifts. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. You'll see those three things. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And friends, this is the proper response when we encounter the king who has been born. Joy worship, and devotion. Joy, worship, and devotion. So do you rejoice at the coming of the King? This is the one who has come to deliver us from all of our enemies once and for all. He is the one who has come to give grace and peace to the world. The one who has come to reverse the curse of sin and death in the world. So do you rejoice at His coming? Do you find 
yourself rejoicing at the fact that you have a king in heaven who rules in righteousness. That he came and was born as a baby in a manger and he was born to die. So that in his living and in his dying, we might live and die no more. Do you rejoice at that fact? Do you rejoice at the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you rejoice at the fact that God loves you in Jesus Christ? Do you rejoice at the fact that he is coming again to judge the world in righteousness? Do you rejoice at these things? And if not, why not? If not, why not? A proper response to the coming of Christ is joy. Next, do you worship Christ? Do you worship Christ? Do you fall down before Him and worship Him as these men did here? Ask yourself, do you love to be in the presence of God? Do you love to be together with other Christians gathered worshiping Him on Sunday morning? Do you have a desire to be together with other Christians in His presence gathered worshiping Him? And if you don't, why not? If you are a Christian and Christ is a king, is his, is king, then these are your people. Right? If you're a Christian and Christ is king, these are your people, then you should have a desire to be gathered together with them, worshiping him. As a matter of fact, you've been commanded to do so in the scriptures. So, do you worship Christ? Do you have a desire to worship Christ? Is your life bound up in the worship of him? Not just on Sunday morning, but in everything that you do, in every place that you go, do you seek to glorify God? Because this is what it means, friends, to be a servant of Christ. So, do you worship Him? Ask yourself. And finally, are you devoted to Him? Are you devoted to Him? Do you give of your time and your energy to Him? Do you give of your tithes and your offerings to Him? Do you give of your obedience to him? Do you give of your service to him? Do you fall down before him like the men here and give him what you have? Are you devoted to him? What are you holding back from Christ? What are you not giving to him? Ask yourself. Ask yourself how much of yourself is not given to him? So are you devoted to him? Ask yourself. So we have seen that Jesus is king of all. He is the true king. The one to whom we owe everything. He gave up all the glory and the power and the authority that he had in heaven to come here and be born as a little babe in a manger. And he had to grow and become mature like the rest of us. He had to learn like the rest of us. He was hungry. He was tired. He was mocked, he was spit upon, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross and died an awful death, and he did it all for us, all so that we might live and never die. And because of this, God has made him Lord of all. Because of that, because of what he has done, he has been made Lord of all, King of kings, King of all. And because of these things, we owe him our all. So let us give of ourselves to him let us give of our time and our devotion and let our joy always be found in him for he is indeed worthy of our all let's pray together